For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. When I was a younger man, before I came to uh, seriously attempt to follow Jesus, uh, at the end of my first year in law school, I was invited to a party uh, at the home of a, a, a woman I had met. She was part of a, a group of friends that we all hung around together. And her father uh, was a lawyer. Uh, I was in Portland, Maine. Her father was a lawyer in one of the uh, finer firms in Portland. Uh, and he either had been or was a bankruptcy judge, uh, uh, Mr. Poulos. Uh, and so I went to that party. I had just finished my first year exams, so I was pretty relaxed. And uh, I decided to bring a bottle of scotch with me, and apparently I drank the whole thing. Uh, and things did not go well that afternoon because at some point I went into the house. I had never met Mr. Poulos. I went into the house and managed to insult him uh, several times in the course of a few minutes. I didn't remember this, but it was brought to my attention. Now, Portland is a small city, uh, and the legal community back in uh, 1977 was small. And the more respectable firms were in a couple of the bigger, very few uh, sort of towers in Portland. And uh, so... During my second year, I applied for a job with one of those firms for the summer between the second and third year. And I got one with one of the two largest firms in the city, and I was all excited. Uh, and, uh, but it dawned on me, you know, someday I might run into that Poulos fellow. And I learned that his firm was in the same building that the firm I was going to work for was in. So I kind of approached uh, going to work every morning that summer with trepidation. Well, one morning I walked into the building and there were two of us in the lobby. And it was me and Mr. Poulos. And we get into the elevator and he looks at me and he says, I bet you don't remember who I am. Well, for those of you who remember Leave it to Beaver, I did my best Eddie Haskell and I said, oh yes, sir, I do. And I am so sorry for what I did last summer. You know, I've been carrying this weight and this fear, and there he was right in front of me. And I don't remember his exact words, but he was at least kind enough to say something like, don't worry about it, it's past, or we all make mistakes, whatever it was. And I was able to breathe a sigh of relief, make it through the rest of the elevator ride and go on to work. Don't we all carry some of those things with us? I've done more. I haven't drunk the whole bottle of scotch and pulled anything like that, but I've done more things in my life that I'm embarrassed of, that I'm ashamed of, that I don't want anybody to know. Some of them so much so that I don't even want to think about them myself, right? I put them in a little box and hide them away so that I don't have to face them. And I don't want anybody else to see them. And sometimes we're afraid of those things that someday they're going to come to light that our friends are going to know it, or the people at church are going to learn about it, or heaven forbid that God will know, as if he doesn't know everything already, right? 
Jacob had this kind of a problem. You see, we've taken up the story of Jacob and Esau today in kind of chapter two because they have a long history before this. They were, they are brothers. They were twins, twins of Isaac and Rebekah. And the, the Genesis tells us earlier on that they struggled in the womb together. And in fact, one commentator says that's mild. The word really means they were smashing each other in the womb. Esau is born first, you know, with twins. It's about a second apart or so. He's born first. He's red, kind of bloody, uh, and he's hairy. So he had, uh, his body was like a hairy cloak. Jacob comes out right behind him, holding on to his heel. And so he was called Jacob, the narrative tells us, which means he takes by the heel or he cheats. I think he was cheating by holding onto the heel to get out of the birth canal the easy way. The two boys grow up. They're quite different. Esau is what we would have called years ago kind of a man's man. He liked to be out in the fields. He liked to be out in the woods. He liked to be hunting, fishing, all that kind of thing. Rugged, outdoorsy guy. Jacob was an indoor guy. Maybe he liked reading papyrus or whatever you would do indoors in those days. We learned that Jacob was mommy's favorite. And it doesn't say so in the narrative anyway, but it may well be that Isaac, I mean uh, Esau, was Isaac's favorite. So their relationship was a disaster waiting to happen. And it did. Some of you probably know the story, but Esau comes in from the field one day and Jacob's cooking, cooking up a stew and Esau's tired and exhausted, hot. And he says, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, sure, if you'll give me your birthright. Esau, the firstborn, entitled to inherit first, entitled to lead Jacob uh, to be sort of head over Jacob even when they grow up, all that kind of stuff. And Esau says, yes. He sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. But that's not enough. There's more. When their father Isaac is about to die, he says to Esau, he says, go out, get me some fresh game, cook me a delicious meal, come in, and I'm going to give you my blessing. That sounds as it should be. For a son gets the father's first blessing. Rebecca overhears this and she says, Ooh, Jacob's my favorite. I'm going to get to help him and, and help him get the blessing. So she calls Jacob and she says, Go out to the flock. You don't need to go hunting. Go out to the flock, grab a couple of sheep or goats, come in. I'll cook up a delicious meal for your father and you can take it in and get his blessing. That's what happens. Jacob goes in uh, and he lies to his father twice. His father says, hey, how'd you do this so fast? Oh, the Lord blessed me, and I was able to, you know, kill a couple of goats uh, really quickly. Not, I took them from the flock, Dad. Uh, and then uh, as he's talking, Isaac's thinking, well, the voice is Jacob, but then he touches Jacob's hands, and I left a little piece out. Uh, Rebecca had given Jacob Esau's clothes and had taken the goat skin and put it on Jacob's hands so that he would be hairy like his brother Esau. 
So Isaac touches Jesus and uh, Jacob and realizes that he's all furry. So he says, the voice is Jacob, but the hands are Esau. Are you really Esau? Lie number two. Yes, father, I'm really Esau. And he gets Esau's blessing. Well, Esau comes in a couple minutes later, realize what's happened. He's furious and he swears one day I'm going to kill Jacob. He's taken my birthright. I'm going to kill him. And he's taken my blessing. Well, now we come to the, so mommy sends Jacob away because he needs to protect him from Esau. Sends him away to her brother Laban where although Jacob's badly mistreated, he's there for about 14 years, he gets a wife and he grows wealthy with flocks and stuff. He's very wealthy. At the same time, Jacob, uh, Esau's gone off and he has become very wealthy. And the day comes where Jacob says, I've got everything I need. I'm getting out from under Laban and I'm going home. Somewhere lurking in the back of his mind, and maybe not so far back, it's, oh man, I did that thing to Esau. I did those things to Esau. Esau hates me. If he finds out I'm on the move, he's going to probably come and want to kill me, kill all my people. He's afraid. And so he sends these messengers off. We'll be coming to our story now. And he sends these messengers off to tell Esau, Jacob's back there. He's got all this stuff and he wants you to have it. So he can buy you off and you won't be mad at him anymore. Well, the messengers come back and they say to Jacob, well, Esau's out there and he's coming over here with 400 men. Right? And Jacob's thinking, uh-oh, revenge time. Or as uh, one of uh, the characters in one of my favorite TV shows in the, uh, when I was a child would say, ruh roll. <laughs> He's in trouble, right? And so he gathers everybody, uh, and then he looks up. He lifts his eyes, and there comes Esau with the 400 men. And so he puts together this plan. He lines everybody up. He gets all his stuff together, his cattle together, his people together. And he starts going over to Esau bowing, seven times bowing, humbly begging, I am your servant, please don't hurt me. And so they meet. They meet. Given their history, Jacob doesn't have much reason to believe that Esau is going to cut him a break, right? If anybody has a legitimate beef against his brother, it's Esau for what Jacob did to him as a younger man. But what does he do? He runs to Jacob. He runs to meet him. He embraces him. He falls on his neck and he kisses him. And then Jacob still, you know, hasn't quite got it yet. And he wants to give him the stuff. And in response to that 
incredibly gracious offer. Esau says, I have all I need. Keep it for yourself. And that's when Jacob says, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. This is what I want to pick up with the time I have remaining this morning. This is where I want to pick up with you. I want to focus this morning. Uh, the context here was really important, so I hope it wasn't too much story, but I think it shows the power of what happens in this meeting. Jacob says that Esau's face was like the face of God. Why does he say that? He says that because Esau has forgiven him, has shown mercy on him, is overjoyed to see him, and has accepted him despite what he's done all those years ago. That is who our God is. That is who our God is, the God who forgives, who is merciful to us, who's overjoyed when we come to him, who accepts us despite whatever it is that we've done. This is our God. We see in the Old Testament several times this refrain that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We see in the New Testament in a story that has some parallels to this, the story of the prodigal son, right? where the prodigal son goes away, but then he comes back. He's not bowing, but in his head, right? He's rehearsing his speech of humility. Father, I've done you wrong. He comes back in that humility like Jacob goes to Esau. And then the father runs to him like Esau did, runs to him and throws his arm around him and kisses him and welcomes him and accepts him home. This is our God. Both stories show that the face of God is the face of forgiveness and welcome. The face of God is the face of delight in our return. The face of God is one that's eager to show us his love and to give us a new start. It's the face that looks down from the cross and says, Father, Forgive. Well, I had my lawyer story, my story with Mr. Poulos, and of course, many other moments in my life of times that I've done something that, you know, really hangs over my head. And we all have those somethings, don't we? What do we do? What do we do? We lift up our eyes as Jacob lifted up his eyes, and we look straight at it. Whatever it is that we did, we look straight at it. We confront it. I did that. We don't hide it in a little box from ourselves. We acknowledge that we did it, that it was wrong. I did this. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because then we lift up our eyes to God. We lift up our eyes to our Heavenly Father. And we show it to him. 
you know, we, we were singing that song that uh, Michael led us a little while ago. You know, when we see you face to face and, and we know salvation, but we get to see the face of God now. Individually, sometimes we see the gospel as Jesus died for everybody's sins and it's kind of a general thing. But we can experience that face of God one-on-one, specifically, particularly to us and to whatever those things are that prey upon our conscience. Look up, show it to him. We can tell him, God, I did this thing, this very specific thing. Come clean, no excuses. I'm sorry. And then we still keep our eyes lifted up on him. No need to hang our heads, but we can keep our eyes lifted up and we will see his face. The face of love and compassion, the face of forgiveness, acceptance, and joy at our presence. That offer is available to us every day for everything that weighs on us. I know it's scary, it's hard to open up like that, but it's worth it. Well, you notice that that wasn't the end of the story. And it's not the end of the story for us that we're forgiven because then we have to, how do we go on? You know, I had this experience, the amazing thing I had to deal with with some people of my sin, and I, I, I confessed it, I was forgiven, but how do I go on? I did that. Can I go on pretending I'm this great guy, I'm a priest and all that? And I had to really figure out what forgiveness was all about. And you see what happens here is that these two go on. They leave behind, right? Jacob has been forgiven and they both leave it there and now they go on into the rest of their lives. I was often in trouble in elementary school and spent a good bit of time in the principal's office. And he was a great guy. He would do whatever he did. No, no, there was no corporal punishment, no shaming, but, you know, let me know I was in trouble and I'd done wrong. But then he would put his arm around me and walk me back to the classroom. And we'd get to the classroom and he'd say, okay, Ross, that's behind us. Now go back in there and get to work. That is what comes next for us. Jesus puts his arm around us and he walks us to the next step and says, that's behind us. Now come, walk with me. I'm just going to give a little plug here for a moment for confession. I know a lot of people wonder, why should I confess my sins to a priest? What's that all about? Well, you know, sometimes we have that thing that weighs on our conscience and we want to go to God, and we want to know his forgiveness, but we don't hear any words. We don't see a physical face looking at us and smiling on us. And the wonderful thing that our sacramental church has done is authorized our priests to give the absolution of God. So for some people, it's really helpful. We have a saying about confession, all may go to confession, none must, and some should. What's the some should all about? It's not because your sins are worse. It's some should 
because they need to know the forgiveness. They need someone to listen to them. We need, I need someone to listen to me when I confess my sins and not frown, not drop a jaw, but listen and then smile, pronounce absolution and send me on my way and perhaps correct me if it's not a sin, if it's not something I should be troubled by. Some should, those who need help with seeing the forgiveness, hearing the forgiveness, and getting straight what really is at stake. Well, just one last thing. We can see the face of God. We can also be the face of God, right? We can be the face of God. We know the pain of that thing that holds us, that weighs on our conscience, and we know the joy of seeing the face of God when we're forgiven. We know the relief we feel. We have the opportunity to do that for others, those who sinned against us. If they lift their eyes to us, acknowledging that they've hurt us, acknowledging their sin, expressing their sorrow, we have a choice. Maybe we want revenge. Maybe we feel if we forgive them, we're letting them off too easily. Maybe we feel if we forgive them, they've won. All sorts of reasons why we wouldn't forgive them, why we wouldn't show them the face of God. But I think the story of Jacob and Esau has a little kernel that helps us there because it says, Esau says, I have enough so that I don't need to hold a grudge against you. I don't need to punish you. We have enough that we don't need to get revenge, that we don't need to hold on to our unforgiveness. We have enough because we have known the love of God and his forgiveness. We have enough because we have the knowledge that God will one day make all things right. We have enough because we have the knowledge that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept for us in heaven. We have enough authority from Jesus who tells us to forgive 70 times 70 and teaches us to pray that we would, God would forgive our sins as we forgive others. And we have enough of the pain and the weight of holding on to that unforgiveness. We have enough. We can be the face of God for others and give them the same relief and the same joy that we have experienced. If we know all this, we have the power to set others free. Well, we live in a culture that's not quick to forgive, we live in a culture that's quick to, in fact, condemn, don't we? And that's our temptation often, to condemn and not to forgive. But our God is not like our culture. He's forgiving, and he calls us to forgive. So let us lift up our eyes to him. Let us be honest to him. Let us see his face of love and forgiveness, acceptance and welcome and let us be the face of God for others 
whenever we can. So this morning, maybe let's take a moment. Let's just take a moment and think to ourselves, are there things that are just weighing us down? Are there things that we just want to hide away? Are there things we need freedom from? Maybe even now, lift up our face, lift up our eyes to our Father. Lift up, show it to Him. Ask Him for forgiveness. Or maybe ask the Lord to give you the strength to come clean if you need to. Or maybe that thing that you need to forgive and it's complicated. Maybe you need help. Maybe there's a a lot of stuff that the the woundedness and psychological pain and a a number of things that it's not going to be easy. Maybe ask the Lord to help you find your way to be the face of God.